Can someone say amen for the kids? Yes, and the, thank you, Kay. I found this in the pew today, so I thought I would just give it a... I figured if it was in church, it had to be okay, so... Anyway, good job, third and fourth graders. Now, if you are a parent, a lot of you are parents here, you can go, let's say, crazy answering young children's questions. They have so many questions, like, why is the sky blue? Where did all the dinosaurs go? Why do dogs bark and cats meow? Why do the kids next door have more toys than me? Why do I have to eat this broccoli? These are some of the pressing questions that young children have. And then they turn into teenagers. And the questions don't stop, they just become a little more pointed and a little more sarcastic. And teenagers learn to perfect the eye roll. And teenagers might ask questions like, who do you think you are telling me what to do? Or they might say, why am I the only one doing any work around the house? Or they might say, why can't I stay out till three in the morning? All the other kids get to do it. And then I suppose I have to use my own money to pay for this. Mm -hmm. Come on, preacher. So even though the questions from children can be exasperating and even at times disrespectful, asking questions is normal and helps us grow. Adults often have questions, many of them directed at God, asking deeper questions like, where are you? Why did you allow me to go through this? Why must I go through this and why don't you answer my prayers? And adults might also be asking questions like, why do I have to eat this broccoli? And I suppose you're going to make me pay for this myself as well. And God asks us questions too. Not because he doesn't know the answers, because God knows all things, but the questions that God asks throughout Scripture are meant to stir up our thinking, they are meant to lead us to repentance, and they are meant to deepen our faith in him. God's questions often were asked not for the answer, but to encourage the person to reflect and grow and deepen in their faith. For example, the very first question in the Bible, God asks Adam, and he says, Adam, where are you? Adam, God knew where Adam was, so God wasn't asking for information. He was wondering if Adam knew where Adam was. So he's saying, Adam, do you see what your distrust of me has led you to do. You are ashamed. You are hiding. You are afraid. And so God asks questions as if to get the person to probe in their own heart. What is going on in my heart? Why am I listening to this person? Or why am I not listening to God? What are you believing about God that isn't true? Now, contrary to popular assumptions, 
Jesus was not the ultimate answer man. You know, we say Jesus is the answer. That's true. But Jesus wasn't always giving the answer to the questions that were asked. Jesus was more like the great questioner rather than the answer man. Jesus asks a lot of questions. I looked this up on the internet, so it's got to be true. And it said that Jesus asked 307 different questions. That's a lot of questions. 307 different questions. He was asked 183 questions, and he only answered three questions. Isn't that interesting? Jesus only answered three of the 183 questions that he was asked. And they're all in Matthew 24. When they asked him, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of this and of the end of the world? Those are the three questions that he answered with the rest of Matthew 24. But in the Gospels, in the Gospels, you always find Jesus asking questions. Why are you so afraid? Why do you call me good? Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Who do men say that I am? What does it say in the law? Where is your faith? These are the kind of questions that Jesus asked other people. Now, Obviously, Jesus prefers to ask questions rather than provide answers. Jesus's, Jesus's method was almost exactly the opposite of modern evangelism and modern t- TV evangelists in the church. He almost did the opposite of what every preacher, teacher, or in the Jewish faith, rabbi, or in the Catholic faith, priest does. When we dispense truth in a proof text kind of method. We offer up bits of inspiring advice to people and sensible solutions for daily living. We give people seven ways to deepen your prayer life and five methods of doing this and three steps to a greater parenthood. Jesus never did that. Jesus was too wise. Jesus was too smart. Jesus was too aware to solve problems with easy solutions. Jesus wasn't into bumper sticker theology. Jesus wasn't into making memes of His deep thoughts. Jesus wasn't the platitude prophet. Jesus never gave advice. Jesus doesn't give us a list of ten ways we can be closer to God. He didn't offer up spiritual tips. Jesus doesn't provide easy answers. Instead, He asks hard questions. And in that way, He's almost more like the the Zen Master who asks questions to take us beyond the obvious to something deeper. Jesus was more like Socrates who taught by asking probing questions. Jesus was more like the prophets who railed against the ruling authorities and sought justice by asking challenging questions of the leaders. So then it makes me have a question. Why have we paid such little attention to the Jesus who asks questions and instead we have focused on His answers? Answers give us this feeling of uh, 
accomplishment. Answers give us this feeling of achievement. Answers give us this feeling of success. Answers give us this feeling of closure. They wipe away life's complications and they offer up clear solutions. That's why so many people like the writings of Ellen White. She gives you answers. She doesn't leave it like, keep the Sabbath holy, where you've got to ask, okay, well, what does it mean to be holy? You could read chapters where she might talk about that in more detail. So she has given you the answer so you don't have to do the thinking for yourself. Whereas really what she wanted you to do was to open your mind to think about the goodness of God and how he could have effect upon your life like he had effect upon her life. You see, we're uncomfortable with the shades of gray. And the more time goes on, the more shades of gray there are about what is right and what is wrong and what should we allow and what should we be tolerant of. So when we find an answer, it helps us to see things, to feel better, because we want to see things in black and white because we're uncomfortable with the shades of gray. So we're looking for easy answers instead of hard, instead of hard questions. Because when we get an easy answer, instead of struggling with a hard question, then it allows us to try to change other people who don't agree with our easy answer, rather than letting that hard question change us. And somebody better say amen. Because that took me 10 minutes to put that sentence together. You think I just spout this stuff? It's hard to struggle with people that are different than ourselves. If only everybody could be like me. Imagine that. What a great world that would be. If only you could all be like me. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Isn't that your prayer? No? How about, as one of my friends says, you be you and I'll be me, and let's do life together. And then let's accept people where they are. Let's struggle with the hard question and not come up with an easy answer. That's what I was thinking about this week as I thought about Jesus. So when I want to consider the questions that Jesus asks, I want to think about what do they tell me about him? When he asks a question, he wants me to think about what it says about him. And more importantly, what does my response to his question say about what I think that it means to follow him? So through his questions, he modeled the struggle and the wondering and the contemplation that encourages that encourages us to draw closer to God. To better understand not just the answer, but ourselves. Perhaps it's because when we ask the question, and when we struggle with the questions, then we grow, and we search, and in the end, we own the answer. Like if Jesus, if you read where Jesus says, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Then I've got to think about what does that mean to love my neighbor? How do I love people that are different than me? How do I love people that are annoying and obnoxious or maybe evil and hateful? How do I love them? Because that's what Jesus commanded me to do. Then I struggle with that, you see, because he asked it in a question for me to struggle with. So he asked questions not to give the answers, but for us to struggle with the question. And find the answer based on 
what Scripture tells us, what the Holy Spirit living inside of us tells us, what our common sense would lead us to say. So today as we continue in this focus on consecration, being dedicated to God, dedicating ourselves and all that we have and all that we are to God, allowing ourselves to be consecrated, which means to be set apart for a holy use in Jesus' name. We want to look at one of his parables which talks about being a good steward of what we have and caring for all that we have. In this parable that I'm going to read, Jesus asks three of the 307 questions, three of them are in this little short parable. Jesus was teaching and using repeated questions to arouse these people's thinking. And this parable has three questions. He asks a question, then he asks another question, then he asks the third question, all in just a few verses. So, let me ask you a question. Is it alright if I read my Bible in church? You see, when I ask that question, it makes you think, Is it all right that we read the Bible in church? Do I need the Bible in church? Why am I at church? Why do I have to eat all this broccoli? Why do I have to pay for this myself? Why does the dog bark? Why is the sky blue? Why is there air? Is it all right to read my Bible in church? So turn to Luke chapter 17. Por favor. Luke 17 verses 7 through 10 is a little parable. I love the parables in Luke. This one's called, in mine at least, I'm reading an English standard version. It says, unworthy servants. And that word unworthy is going to come up later. It's an interesting word. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, see, I wish, I wish mine had the words of Jesus in red. I really like that. And this Bible doesn't have the words of Jesus in red. How many of you have the words of Jesus in red? That's, that's worth a zillion dollars. Will any of you, will any one of you who has a servant, that same word there is either bondservant, servant, or slave. It's all the same word. It had different meanings back in those times. So you might have bondservant, slave, servant, all the same word. Talk about it in a minute. So any of you who has a servant, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? It's a strange question. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Question two. Here's three. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Strange little parable. I'd never thought about this parable until I worked on this sermon. So the first question, the response to the first question The first question is, would any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Now the answer that he wants them to come to the conclusion about is, of course not. No one listening to Jesus would consider having their servant, which means that they're the master in the parable sense, 
They're the master. No one would say to their servant, who might be a, a shepherd or a, a sheep herder or a plowman, come in from your work, recline at the banquet table, and eat alongside me, the master. It just didn't happen. The traditional roles of master and servant were well defined, and to allow this would have implied that the servant had the status of an honored guest or equality to the master. So beginning his parable with this opening absurd question would have piqued the curiosity of those listening. It doesn't seem absurd to me. It just seems odd. Would any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Well, you see, I don't have a servant. I've never had a servant. I remember when I went to school, there were some kids in my town that were kind of rich and they had a maid. And then they also had like a family room with the TV. Those were the two things that made me think you were rich. If you had a family room with the TV, you had a living room and a family room. I thought, wow, these people are rich. We never had that. We had a room, a living room, and had a TV and a couch and two chairs. And if you had more than one bathroom in your house, that was rich to me. We had one bathroom and no air conditioning. You want to hear more of these sad stories? Because i got a whole bunch of them. Yes, three bedroom, one bath, one phone, no air conditioning. I walked five miles to school, kids, uphill, both ways, on broken glass. Dogs jumping. How did I get talking about that? Oh, I don't know what it's like to have a servant or a slave. So that's an absurd question to me, but he's saying, of course, nobody would invite their worker in and say, sit down at the table. You just don't do that. Then the second question, he says, would he, would he rather not say to him, the servant, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Now, it sounds harsh to me that a man who had done a day's labor comes in from the field and then he's expected to prepare a meal, then go change into clothes prepare, proper for serving that meal, then serve the food to the master, and then only after all of this is done would the man be allowed to eat. This was considered appropriate at the time. It sounds quite harsh and cruel to me to not let the guy eat first. But the second question is, of course you would expect this man to serve you. The servant should come in from the field and feed the master before eating. No one listening to this parable would expect a servant to be given special treatment just for doing what he was supposed to do. You see, that's what Jesus is building up to. When you have done what you were supposed to do, don't expect something. Just do what you're supposed to do. You see, the servant was just doing what he was expected to do as a servant. The master wasn't indebted to him in any way because he kept the master's sheep or because he plowed the master's field. Nothing out of the ordinary had occurred and no one would expect the servant to be giving special privileges for doing his job, which was plow or take care of the sheep, then come in and feed the master. Then you can eat. That's what he was supposed to do. Why would he receive any benefit for doing what he was supposed to do? That's what he's saying so far. Then when those listening heard the third question, which was, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So when those listening heard the third question, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The, the response would be, of course not. 
The word translated thank is very interesting here. He says, does he thank the servant? That word is most of the time translated grace. It's the word charis. C-H-A-R-I-S in Greek. And my brother-in-law, his parents, his dad, my father-in-law, who has passed away, was a pastor, and he thought it would be nice to name his son Charis. means grace. In this case, it means thanks. It's a beautiful word. But he named him that, spelling it C-H-A-R-I-S, which is the Greek way to spell, spell it, Charis. But then when everybody would meet him, they would say, is your name Charis? So he eventually changed his name to Charis with a K because the C-H kept getting mispronounced. Or people would spell it wrong and thought it said chairs. You guys with me today? It's good stuff. Here the word charis is translated thanks. So he says, does he thank, does he charis, does he charis the sermon? Does he thank him? Is he generous to the sermon because the servant has done what the servant was supposed to do? That's what he's saying. Of course not. Does the master give credit or reward to the servant for doing what he was told to do? Does the servant earn something extra? That's what he wants these people to think about by his absurd questions. Now the master may appreciate the servant at the end of the day, and he might say thank you, or that was nice, or that was tasty, but, but the issue is more serious than that. The question is, is the master indebted? Does the master owe something to the servant when the servant has done what he knew he was supposed to do? And the answer is resoundingly no in the parable. Now this sort of goes against the ways of the world, which is always tell people how appreciative of you are and you can never say thank you too much. And that's really not the point here, as you'll see. He's not saying that the servant should just sit there and never say thank you. So at this point, Jesus then turns and addresses the listeners that he's telling this parable to, and that's his disciples. And he says, so you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So this is what he says to his disciples at the end of this little three-question parable. They are to call themselves unworthy servants. And that, again, goes against a lot of what we see as building up the self-esteem of people. But the, the King James, interestingly enough, translates that unprofitable servants, unworthy, unprofitable. The word means useless, good for nothing, without need. Very odd. So the servant calls himself useless or unworthy because although the servant has done he needed to do, he has done nothing except what he ought to do. He has done nothing except what he knew he had to do. He possesses no merit is really what he's saying. He has only done what was expected and he could only claim to be profitable if he had done something more than he was bound to do. He has no need of extra pay. He has no need of extra reward. That's the point. Jesus is saying when you have done what you agreed to do as to being a servant, and in this case he means his servant, you shouldn't expect more for doing what you knew you should have done in the first place. It's an interesting thought in this day and age, isn't it? To think that we, we should just do what we are 
meant to do because we were meant to do it and we should be thankful that we get to do what we should be doing. Kind of goes against everybody playing soccer and everybody getting a trophy and everybody gets awards and everybody gets banquets, you know, all of that stuff. But in other words, it's saying the servants who do what is expected of them are without need, meaning they are not owed anything extra by the master. The master is in no way indebted to the servant for the servant doing what is expected of him. So here's the message for you and me. So if you need to take a little nap, I'll give you the message now. Usually I give it to you earlier so you can get a longer nap. Here's the message. You can still get in a 10-minute nap. I'll wake you up at the end. Here's the message. The message is those who serve God do not put God in their debt. God is not beholden to any of us. God does not owe us anything. We owe God everything. So this isn't about saying thank you. This isn't about letting someone know they did a job well done. This isn't about being appreciative to what people do for you. This is about people doing things for God and thinking somehow they can earn His favor. Somehow they can earn their salvation. This doesn't mean that God doesn't reward those who love Him and serve Him, but those who serve God have no right to claim or demand reward. God, didn't I serve you all my life? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? God, why have you forgotten me? Like He owes us something. So our relationship with God is not one where we earn or we deserve or we bargain for some sort of reward. A servant of Christ is someone who loves and serves God out of love, out of loyalty, and even out of duty. And if you are parents, or if you are married, there is nothing wrong with realizing that you have certain duties to your mate, or certain duties to your kids, and it's all right to do things out of duty. But hopefully it's not just duty. That's a funny word to say over and over again. (laughs) Duty. Sounds almost naughty. It's, It's okay to do things out of duty, but hopefully in addition to the duty, there's love. In addition to the love and the duty, there's loyalty. In addition to all those, there's a sense of well-being that what you're doing brings fulfillment to you. And that's what he's saying in this parable. Love God out of loyalty. Love God out of duty. Love God because you are His servant in the best form of the word. But in the end, serving God is its own reward. Don't look for anything extra. Don't look for Him to love you more because you come to church on the seventh day. Don't look for Him to love you more because you gave up this or you don't do that. Don't don't look for Him to love you anymore because you do these things at church. He doesn't love you anymore and He can't love you any less. Paul called himself a servant. A bond servant is kind of the King Jamesy word. Romans 1.1, Titus 1.1, Paul says, I am a servant of Christ. That describes his relationship with Christ. He labors out of a sense of willing duty and loyalty rather than for financial gain or other gain. He, he serves with a, with a sense that all the security that he ever needs, all the love that he will ever need comes from knowing God and serving God with a grateful heart. And to us, when we realize all that Christ has done for us and is doing in us, we realize that He is the Master and we are not. So to be His servant is not a bad thing. It is actually our privilege. It is your privilege to know Christ and to serve Him. Now it doesn't always feel that way probably. There's times when you 
feel bad or you feel lost, and that's, that's okay. You've created to an overarching way. You've created to a path. You've created to a journey. Any of you that have ever tried to lose weight, my wife and I are on this one, to eat healthier, so we have no snacks in the house. So I committed to it in a moment of strength. No snacks! And then last night I'm in the pantry, like, looking for anything. Well, there's Hershey's syrup. I could down some of that. Because I committed to it in my moment of strength, you see. But that doesn't mean I don't ever get weak because I was strong at some point. It doesn't mean I get weak. And she goes, well, you can eat some fruit. Who wants to eat fruit? You. Don't you rather have a cookie? <laughs> that was a test question. You see, you commit to things in your strength, and then the key is to stay committed to them even when you don't feel strong. It's easy to commit to things when you feel strong. That's why I say when it comes to food, the victory is won at Kroger. The victory is won at Publix. It's not won when you're standing there in front of the pantry. I got potato chips, pretzels, Cheetos, Sometimes those are my temptation. But last night it was the, the sweetness. I couldn't find it. And I'm off the subject again. So when you realize all that He has done for you, when he, you realize He's the Master, and you're the servant, and that's not a bad word, to be a servant of Christ, is what relationship with Him is all about. Then you realize that there's no way, by this parable, it tells us there's no way you can earn the Master's love anymore. You shouldn't be looking for extra rewards. So you realize all that you have is already in relationship with Him. And all that you have is His to use. And all that you have is consecrated or set apart for holy use to Him. And so that includes your time. And that includes your thoughts. And that includes your money. And that includes your children. And that includes your home. And that includes the use of your car. All that you have is to be used in service to Him. That's what it means to be consecrated. Everything you have is His because it's all done with love. Again, when you get married, Someone moves into your house or you move into their house or you get a place together all at once they got their stuff there. You should see my closet. I can talk about this because my wife's not here today. Don't tell her I said anything. We have a pretty big closet. You know, it's, uh, it could be somebody's bedroom. Me, the Pastor Joe, I got this one little section over here with little dress shirts, dress pants, short sleeve shirts, Sweatshirts, a little shoe rack. The rest of it, it's to her honor and glory. We'll take this out of the, we won't post this online, this part. Hey, you. But you know what? It's my honor and my, not glory, what's the word? It's my joy to give her three quarters of the closet. You know why? Leave this part in. Because I love her. Take this part out. I wish I had half the closet. Put this back in. But I love her. That's what love does. Love takes. And love gives. Anybody here contemplating marriage? Talk to me. We'll talk. Be prepared. It's not 50-50 in a marriage. It's 100-100. 
And compromise doesn't mean that you give halfway. Sometimes it means you give up. If compromise was 50-50, and you'd say, where do you want to eat? And she'd say Chinese, and you'd say Italian. That would mean you'd go for half your meal at Chinese, and then you'd go to half the meal at Italian. It doesn't work like that. Compromise 50-50 would make everybody unhappy most of the time. And I'm off the subject again. Because to be consecrated is to give all that you have to someone that you love. And when you love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, then to serve and to give is to be His. And that is love. So then you're not thinking, well, how much do I have to do? What is it exactly I have to give up? You're like, Who, how much more of me can I give you? I need to give you all that I have. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. So as servants, we work for Him in order to fulfill our duty to Him. And what we, what, what we receive from God is a gift from His hand. It's not a payment for something that we have done. When you realize that He loves you exactly the way you are, then you would also realize that He doesn't want to leave you the way you are, that He wants to make you more like Him. As you consecrate yourself to Him, you become more like Him. We serve Him because we're grateful. We serve Him because we love Him. And it's because our service to Him is motivated by love and gratitude, not reward, that He rewards us. And His reward is to be in relationship with Him. Your reward is to be the servant of the Master. Your reward is to be the disciple of the Creator of the world. Your reward is to know Jesus with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that could prompt you to ask one final question back to him. What did I do to deserve this love? Long to end on. Good picking there, Max. We've had a great Sabbath service with our kids singing and dedicating Selah, a special day on her birthday. So go out filled with joy that the Master loves you and that to serve Him is your honor and your privilege and your reward. There's nothing you can do to earn His love and there's nothing you can do to lose it. You can only learn to love Him more. So let us pray. Father, I pray Your blessing on all of us. May the Holy Spirit rain down and sanctify us and change us into Your likeness. May we be more like Jesus and less like the world. May we be more of the Spirit and less of the flesh. May we be more of love and less of hate and divisiveness. Bless us. Bless those who are dealing around the world with earthquakes in Puerto Rico or fires in Australia or um, tornadoes and bombings all over the world. Lord, we pray for your soon second coming. We pray for the Spirit to have reign in our hearts and in our homes. Lord, bless us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.